the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Difference Makers. Welcome. My name is Mike Lee, Director of Local Ministries for True Talk 800, 93.9 KPDQ, AM 860, The Answer, KPAM, La Patrona, 1640, 93.1 El Rey, and 104.1 The Fish. And I'd love to talk with you about getting more people back to your church, sharing about your ministry through our free online church directory and our church service live stream directory, expanding your ministry or business beyond your walls, establishing yourself as an authority in your field, and becoming more known through radio, building awareness of your company or outreach by hosting our events at your location at no risk to you, marketing your message or brand directly to your target audience, the latest and most powerful online tools of Salem Surround, and most importantly, if your ministry leader or pastor could use a phone call, a word of encouragement, a cup of coffee, or a connection to others, please email me at mikeley at kpdq.com. That's M-I-K-E-L-E-E at kpdq.com. I met our very special guest today, Chris Mead, at the church I attend, which is Morningstar Community Church in Salem. At the time, our mutual pal, Jared Boltman, another pastor at Morningstar, was sharing how Chris had grown up in the church and was being considered for new opportunities. Eventually, he became a pastor at Morningstar for a season— He also served as a lead pastor in Texas, Colorado, and California, and entered the Doctorate in Ministry and Strategic Leadership Program at Corbin University. Chris Mead, how are you today, sir? I am so good, Mike. It's so good to be here. I've I've heard you on the radio several times. I think you have an excellent radio voice, and it's good to be here with you today. That is so sweet of you. Maybe not entirely true, but I appreciate (laughs) the endorsement. When you were preaching at Morningstar, I just want to thank you because I was so profoundly touched by messages that you had given. And Hmm. you're a bit of a visual guy. You're the guy who walked the platform. So when Morningstar expanded its platform to a ridiculously long one, we had joked that it was for you to be able to preach from it and have more walk-in area. That is absolutely not the case, but I sure was excited (laughs) about that because you're right. I'd like to... Get as close to the people as I, when I'm teaching as I can, because I want to have that connection with anybody who's listening. Well, I think you do a great job at it. You obviously work very hard at what you do, especially when it comes to preparation. I mean, we've been planning this interview probably for at least months. And before driving up here, you were very concerned about what we were going to talk about. So I figured, why don't we start off with your history? Where did you grow up in the first place, Chris Maid? I'd love to. I'm actually born and raised right here in Oregon. I grew up in Salem. In fact, the joke is that if there was a ghetto in Salem, I grew up in it. My my next door neighbor was a recycling plant right off of the uh, parkway. But um, I grew up in a broken home and parents got divorced before I was even born. My mother uh, was a follower of Jesus. And so we grew up going to church. In fact, I remember like it was yesterday giving my life to, to Jesus as my kindergarten teacher shared the gospel and talked about what that meant. And so I remember going to the front of the class and saying, yes, that's what I want. And I remember that day feeling different. But growing up in a broken home with dysfunction and, and all those things, my, my sisters got into a lot of trouble. So I was the good kid at home. And so I did everything my mom wanted me to do. I loved reading my Bible and going to church. But as I watched my sisters getting into trouble, as I watched the attention that they got, there was an internal conversation that was happening with me that I I said something almost literally to this, that Jesus, this, this Christianity thing doesn't seem to be working for me. You seem to have stopped working for me, so I'm going to stop working for you. So at the age of 12, I literally called up a friend of mine and said every cuss word in the book. And that was like my initiation into seeking anything other than God that would satisfy me, searching for all those things, like as Solomon says, underneath the sun that would satisfy me other than Jesus. 
And the more I did, the more dissatisfied I got, the more angry I got, this downward spiral of destruction. I, I did that for probably eight or nine years of seeking things other than Jesus and getting deeper and deeper and deeper into my own sin, knowing the truth, knowing exactly who God was, but knowing that I was just angry at him, and so I wanted to to find something other than him. And as you know, nothing satisfies you. When you know the truth of who Jesus is, there's nothing that can satisfy you other than Jesus. And so I, I ended up going through this time of breaking where the Lord actually allowed me to hit rock bottom. And it was at that moment that I knew that I needed to give my life back to Jesus fully, allow him to have all of my life, allow him to be Lord of my life, because I was making a mess of it. And that changed everything. I was in the Florida Keys at the time working, and I drove all the way back home from the Florida Keys all the way back to Salem, Oregon. And that decision changed my life. Coming back to Salem from Florida That must have been some trip for you. It was five days of nonstop prayer, seeking every Christian radio station I could find, listening to every uh, sermon I could listen to, and every Christian song I could soak up. Everything I could do to soak up Jesus was was exactly what I was pursuing. And experiencing the grace that, that God had shown me after years of willfully rebelling against him, to soak up that the grace that God was pouring out onto me was just an incredible experience. Yeah, it was a really long trip, but it was some of the most intense time of intimacy with, with my God, with our God, over those five days of driving from the Florida Keys in my lostness to coming back to Salem in my now foundness. It's interesting you mentioned that your mom had taken you to church from as early as you can remember, and that you did receive Jesus in your heart at a young age. But somewhere down the line, things faded. That honeymoon stage tanked. And you also mentioned having sisters. So what's the birth order in the home you grew up in? Two sisters. Both are older than I am. I have a a brother that is nine years younger than I am. And so we have a total of four. But my sisters are literally a year older and two years older. So it was sister, sister, me in three years. So for your mom, boom, 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 three kids in three years, and your dad had split up with her before you were born? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So had a dad that was incredibly abusive, verbally, physically, uh, emotionally to my mom. And so when she was pregnant with me, my father literally tried to punch her in the stomach so that I would die. And so it was like... Entering into a life of turmoil as soon as I was conceived. Wow. But she somehow kept things together as best as she could with you kids. Yeah, she is my hero. I mean, to to have her as a single mom, as a follower of Jesus, to do her best to raise three kids and then four kids later on to put herself full-time through school plus working full-time. I mean, it was it was not easy. I think moms need to get more credit. I mean, my late mom was a woman of prayer. So when I had my stupid, clueless years, she never stopped praying for me. Mm. She never got in my face. She never dumped me or threw me out or anything like that. And at one point she said, look, I know you're not getting anything out of this church that we raised you in. So Mm. go find yourself a church. It doesn't have to be this one. Mm -hmm. Go find yourself a church. And I've certainly known enough women similar to your mom, Chris, over the years, who had to raise kids on their own. Mm -hmm. And something I've noticed is there are some completely messed up kids who grew up in nice enough solid families. And there are other kids who somehow managed to navigate a broken home Mm -hmm. and end up walking really, really strongly with the Lord. And I guess like my wife says, God doesn't have any grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So somewhere down the line, each and every one of us has to come to that point where we own our own faith. That's right. And we're choosing Jesus as individuals, not as the kid of our parents Mm -hmm. or something like that. So was there a gradual slide for you going from just in love with the Lord as a little kid to age 12 or so saying, I'm done with this. This isn't working for me. What do you think led to that change of heart for you? I I think, yes, gradual, but then... That step in was a dive into the pool 
or that step out of faith or of walking with Jesus was a dive into the world, if you say. Because part of it was the dysfunction of our home, the the, the tension of, of our faith, the, the tension of being the good kid and having all the attention being directed towards the ones who were causing trouble, the ones who were in trouble, which is necessary, especially as a single mom. How do you juggle? I mean, my, my sisters were in and out of, of drug rehab. They were in and out of girls' homes. And so my mom had to travel back and forth, plus having a newborn that was nine years younger than me. So I was at home taking care of my brother when my mom was working and was going to school and also caring for my sisters who were in and out of these places that they were out of our home. And so it was this tension in me of going, I thought my life would be different. Even at at the age of like 10, 11, and 12, I thought my life would be different. And I started seeing as I was growing up the dysfunction and the dissonance of our faith and the life that I was living. And there was something that was dissatisfying that I had to find why it was dissatisfying. And so I had to search for, like you said, you had to make your faith your own. And I had friends that were trying to influence me away from from Jesus for years. And so bad company corrupts good morals, as, as the scripture says. And so they did for me as well. And so I allowed myself to start pursuing other things when I felt like Jesus wasn't working for me or Christianity wasn't working, which is what so many people are going through right now today. And so for me, that was when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, and then deciding to take that deep dive into the world, which was one of the worst decisions I could ever make, but it's also formative to to me as a pastor and to me. I mean, God redeems all things, all of our bad mistakes. He uses all things for good. I, I lean on that scripture because he can even take our big mistakes and redeem them for our good and for his glory. And I've seen him do that again and again. That's so true. And while we were talking here, Chris, what I'm soberly reminded of is the story of the prodigal son. So the quote unquote good son, <laughs> the one who stayed back and worked, had a resentment about all the attention that his dad spent on the prodigal son mm-hmm. who blew everything and came mm-hmm. back with nothing. And having been blessed to be a dad with four kids of my own, I'm thinking to myself, are there times where I just kind of put the kids who are doing okay on cruise control and I don't pray for them enough Mm. because I'm concentrating on someone having a more immediate problem. Sorry, that's just kind of popped into my head right now. Which I love that story because both sons in that story were in error. And it's the father who's the hero of that story. And I look at my life and I've played the role of both sons. And I think that we we deal with both edges of, of the two sons, of the prodigal and the one that stayed at home. And, and so for me, I know that, and I, in fact, I had this conversation with my family just not too long ago, that yes, some of the things in my childhood were hard. And yes, some of the things with that my siblings experienced were hard, but God gets to be the hero and redeem those stories. And so now even with my my kids that my wife and I are raising, and we are committed to changing the next generation and not continuing the dysfunction or uh, where we are stopping the generational sins of, of our families. and But we know we're going to mess up our kids in completely different ways. And now they have to make a decision that their faith is their own. And so God gets to be the hero of all of our stories and take our own dysfunctions that each one of us have because we're sinners and we're saved by grace. And so my kids now have to make the same decisions to follow Jesus. The toughest thing about being a dad for me, Chris, is knowing that we could do everything on a little Christianese churchy checklist. And because they've got free will, our kids are going to decide what they're going to decide. And that could indeed be walking away from relationship with Christ. And don't get me wrong. I love when they do well in academics or theater or music or just being good people looking out for their friends and saying, my friends are sick. Can we drop some food off at their house? Mm -hmm. I love these moments, but it's tough being a parent. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's been the most satisfying job I've ever had Mm -hmm. to be a dad, even more than the fact that I get to work in radio, which I've loved since I was a kid. But yeah, parenting is tough. So how do we as parents not automatically swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme of the problems we grew up with? 
That, that's a big question that might take up the rest of our time. <laughs> I mean, I think that the most important thing for us as parents is to be the disciplers of our children. I mean, for us as parents, it's hard not to get distracted by the things of this world, whether it's our own pursuits, whether it's the pursuits of then living those out through our children. And we want our kids to be either the sports star. We want them to be the academic star. We want them to be uh, the top at whatever it is that we hope that they will be. Uh, Or it's the apathy of parents of ignoring their kids and focusing on themselves. And so there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things that pull our hearts. But as believers, as followers of Jesus, one of the most important things that we can do as parents is to pour into our kids spiritually and to disciple them, to equip them to handle the things that, that the distractions of this world, the things that are going to pull their heart. And I think that's one of the things that we have lost in our church is this commitment to discipleship. And that's not just in families, but that's in the church as a whole. And so for parents, there's nothing more important we can do than to build into the spiritual lives of our kids. Great insights from Chris Mead. Chris, when we return, let's talk about some of these root issues that we're too quick to avoid sometimes. You're listening to Difference Makers. Welcome back to Difference Makers. Mike Lee here with my friend, Pastor Chris Mead. And Chris, I do want to talk about Challenges that you're seeing in the church that we need to address, especially about a need to recommit to discipleship. But before we do, I want to get the rest of your story. So, you grew up with a single mom. You received the Lord at a young age. In particular, seeing attention go into some of your older sister's issues. Somewhere around the age of 12 or so, you said, this isn't working for me. And you chose to walk away from the Lord. And you're pretty good at finding trouble or allowing trouble to find you. I was very good at that. So what led you to go to Florida in the first place? Oh, jeez. I mean, it was an opportunity. Before I even graduated from high school, I moved out of my house and uh, lived on my own, lived with my sister, uh, went to several different high schools, found a lot of trouble, got into a lot of trouble. I escaped a lot of trouble by the grace of God, but I had an invite. From a guy. I mean, there's one time where I, a friend that I met like in five minutes was like, hey, I'm moving to Idaho and anybody want to move with me? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Sign me up. That's just the kind of personality I had as a young man. And so there was an opportunity to go to Florida to work at a restaurant there right in the Florida Keys in Isla Mirada. And I was like, that sounds interesting. When am I ever going to have this opportunity? And so I went to Florida and worked there for a summer. So this Oregon-raised boy, Chris Mead, thought the concept of going Across the country to Florida and working in the restaurant industry. Hey, why not? Why not? And did the same thing. Found a lot of trouble there. I mean, there's there's only a couple things to do in Florida, which was drinking and fishing, and, and I didn't fish. And so <laughs> that was just the reality of my fallenness and where I was in my, my walk. And that was part of what God used to break me and, and to draw me back to himself and to his grace. And so, um, yeah, it was... Not the best time, but it was also in a, a really fun time. I, I'll be lying if I didn't say that, but God used those things to draw me back to him. So was it a gradual process for you coming back to the Lord oh, in your definitely. Florida days? It was a very gradual process. And so like I shared with you before, like I came to faith when I was very young. I knew the truth. I knew the gospel of Jesus. And, and so... Like I can look back and see like the 2020 hindsight of how God would place certain people in my life to draw me back to him. They would invite me to church or they would trick me to go to church and um, <laughs> or just people that of immense grace that there were so many people in my life that would say that guy is too far gone. He is beyond grace. And and I knew people like that, and I encountered a lot of people within the church like that. My mom struggled with that as she was kicked out of churches for being a single mom, being divorced. I experienced that uh, as a person lost in my own struggles, in my own cycle of dysfunction and and um, behavior that was tearing my life down. 
But there were certain people that I look back and I can see God planting them in my life and showing me grace, showing me that love that only God can show, that unconditional love. And those were kind of sprinkled throughout. And so there'd be times where they would say, it would be like God saying, are you ready? And and I would enter back into the church and I would go to a church service and, and I would experience God in, in a new way. And then I'd be like, the anger would come back up. The walls would would be built back up and I'd say, no, I'm not. And so those would sprinkle throughout my life, throughout my teen years and early 20s. And then in Florida, it was like God saying, I'm done. My long suffering with you is done. You're mine and I'm not letting you go. And he dramatically pulled me back into a relationship with him. And it's so many people who have gone through addictions and hidden that, that was my rock bottom moment. And that, that brought me back to a, a sobriety of, of my spiritual walk, if you will. Chris, I don't know anyone who doesn't have friends, relatives, neighbors, or loved ones that they care so deeply about that have fallen into issues, especially when it comes to substance abuse. And looking at you here now today is an encouragement that we should never, ever, ever stop praying that no one is beyond God's redemption until their dying breath on this earth and that we might not see the big picture. That's right. But – whether it's the president of the United States or our next door neighbor or loved ones who are having issues, we are called to pray for them. It's part of my ministry and why I went into ministry. There's a, a verse in Hebrews twelve fifteen that, that says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. So that is a, a call for us. It, it's on us, our responsibility to share the grace that God has so lavished on us that it's our call to make sure that others see and experience and know the grace of God. God has showed me so much grace, and there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that's more satisfying to me than making sure that other people see and experience that same grace that he's given me. And and that is all of our call, as we have all been shown that grace, that we are to show that, whether they are, you see them as hopeless. My message that no one's hopeless. You see Paul who would, you know, murdered people and attacked the church and, and people who think that they are hopeless and irredeemable. Well, are you Paul? Have you murdered someone? God used him to launch the church and to, to write half of the New Testament. There's no one beyond God's grace. There's no one beyond hope. Thanks for the reminder, Chris Mead. So you've got this experience in Florida. You drive yourself back to Oregon. What happened then? Interesting story. So I... I got back and I started working and I was driving past the church that I grew up in and that had left when I was a junior high. And, and I think I was in eighth grade, whatever it was when I was 12 years old. And I was working at Red Robin in Salem and a girl recognized me from junior high. And she's like, oh my goodness, Chris Mead, where have you been? And I'm like, oh, I've been around and just trying to dismiss things. She's like, you have to come to church with us. You have to come. We, we just moved. We just got into this new building, and I had been driving past it, feeling God prompt me. But I'll be honest with you, I, I knew the grace of God. I didn't believe that the church would show me the same thing. I was scared to go back to church because I knew that once I entered into the church doors, that people would know I don't belong there. And so I actually started, I, I followed her lead from that one invite. That random chance meeting, which we know is never random or never chance. It's always God's providence. And I would start going into church late. And because I grew up in church, I knew the routine. I, I knew what happened. So, and then I would leave early. As soon as the pastor started to pray, I would bolt because I didn't want anybody to know what a horrible sinner I was and for them to know I didn't belong there. And I did that for months until one of the pastors saw. He's like, hey, I see what you're doing. I see you coming in late, and I see you leaving early. He's like, stop that. Get involved. Get engaged. Be a part of this community. Allow yourself to be known. And that decision to do that, to submit to that, changed my life. That's where I started getting my call into ministry and experiencing the, the gifts that God has given me and, and to experience that I needed not just to have a relationship with Jesus, I needed to be a part of the community of believers. I couldn't do this alone. In fact, I was never supposed to do it alone. You mentioned, Chris, that you didn't want to be seen because you didn't want people 
thinking, oh, he doesn't belong here. So I've got plenty of friends who have experienced the exact same thing. So how much do you think is the failure of the church to just embrace and love people versus the perception of someone who may have gone through a marital split like your mom had? And if you're out there and you've had a family split and a church has ostracized you as a result, I hope that you don't hold that against Jesus. Mm. I think that some churches have good intentions. Others are just kind of off. And they come up with their little rules and addendums to the Bible. And maybe they mean well, but I don't think Jesus would kick a divorced single mom out of the church. Like, sadly, some of the modern churches have done. So, anyway, if you experience that, I want to apologize for Christianity, for church dumb, because I just don't think that's right. Well, and I love that you say that, and I love that you encourage those people who have experienced that, because there are numbers upon numbers of people. In fact, um, part of the challenges of the church right now is that the people are leaving the church in droves because of what they're experiencing. But the challenge of what you're asking in the question of, is it the church or is it the, the person, their perception? And I would say it's both and. Because we are sinners by nature, we, we naturally are drawn away from God. We, we make own, our own idols. We are drawn to religion instead of an authentic relationship with Jesus. And to be honest with you, there is a rampant issue of being biblically illiterate and not knowing what the Bible has to say. And so we have kind of place that over into a personality that we hear for a half an hour on one time a week. And so we, we are drawn to religion and we see this even as Jesus came in his ministry on the earth. And so when, when he was here, I mean, the same criticisms that you're talking about today were the religious leaders of the day. They were drawn to religion. They were drawn to law. They were drawn to rules and regulations and you fit in and these people don't fit in. And so if you fit in with us, you can come into our club. And if you don't fit in with us, you need to be out until you fit in. And here Jesus comes in this radical new ministry where he's eating and bringing in this fellowship with, with quote, quote, sinners and people who were the ostracized of the world. And we see this completely different ministry and a completely different heart to say that he came to seek and save the lost rather than to make sure people fit the mold of a religion. And that that should change all of us, but it's so easy to lose sight of. It's so easy to drift, as we talk about in, in the church world, what they say, like mission drift, that the call of the church is to make disciples. Jesus said this right before he left, right before he kind of entrusted everything to his disciples in Matthew 28. He says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what I've commanded, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But that call to make disciples, we have changed and we have morphed into this idea of like the mission of the church is to make bigger buildings. It's to get people in the seats and to listen to somebody speak for a half an hour on a Sunday. And that's church. That's the mission. And we have veered away from what the actual mission of the church is and what church leadership should be. And we see that now with all of the the divisions in the church and how it's struggling with these cultural divides that are infiltrating into the church, which are all symptoms of, of a bigger issue. So how do we recommit the church to discipleship versus well-meaning programs or increased numbers or whatever program is big at that particular congregation well i mean i want to first say because this is even a division within church leadership or within people within the church that big church is bad small church is good or small church is bad big church is good and so no matter what the gathering of believers is good and so whether it's big small medium no matter what if you're gathering together uh it's it's good it's good for us we're commanded to do this we're not to forsake the fellowship of believers Um, That has nothing to do with size. I'm glad that you brought that up because one of the early positives about pandemic was the fact that so many of us that were on the fence about our technology or video or live streaming were forced into action. And simultaneously, I think an underlying message went out that the church is about, listen, 
it's not about fellowship. It's not about lifting each other up and being lifted up by others. And so many churches that I've experienced, uh, big church, little church, it just doesn't matter. And in fact, uh, what's kind of eased my mind, Chris, is the fact that we're all messed up. (laughs) We're all dumb as dirt and dirtier than rags without the saving grace of Jesus Christ and his truth. I being the chief of those. So once that clicked in my head and I've finally figured out that the percentage of churches, ministries, pastors that have issues, baggage, or history is 100%. And that there's no one individual right one out there. Mm -hmm. It kind of made life easier for me Mm. because I wouldn't want to walk into a place always thinking negative thoughts and Mm -hmm. always looking for the problems or issues, but not being surprised by them was healthy for me. Mm -hmm. I think that there's so many things. I mean, there's so many different directions we could go because there's a lot of stuff that I think the pandemic and I think the struggles of the last several years, whether it be going back to uh, the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, or uh, COVID, masks, no masks, vaccines, no vaccines. I mean, all these things, the the racial tensions in in our society and our culture. Uh, the cultural divide that's infiltrating the church. I mean, there's all of this stuff that is is tearing apart the unity of the church. I mean, as I shared before, there's people who are leaving the church, whether it be the deconstruction of their faith or the pandemic has shown that I wanted more from church. I wanted more than just going on a Sunday morning. If you sing great or you're listening to somebody sing and then you listen to somebody give a message, you might shake a couple of hands and then you go home and then you live your life throughout the week. And I think most people are, are seeing that what was offered and the things that we have built up are, are emptier than they should be. And there's now a new generation that's coming up. There are people because of, of the pandemic and all of the struggle in our society that's saying, I want more. There should be more to this abundant life that Jesus offers. It has to be different than this. And so like, there's a, a reform that's happening within the church. In fact, there's this underlying of, of the looking at what are the serious issues then in the church. And part of it is, is that leadership has made this pact unbeknown, probably with all good intention to say, I just want you to keep showing up. I want to feel good about me being a senior pastor and filling more and more seats so we can have bigger buildings, but we need to have more money to have bigger buildings, and so you need to keep coming up, but I'll continue to present something that you like, that is engaging, and maybe that's entertaining or that's funny to you, and so that we start following a personality rather than following Jesus. And so again, the mission of the church has become make bigger buildings so we can get more people in there. And again, more people is good because we want people to be saved. We want them to hear the message and the gospel of Jesus. But the point that Jesus gave to us is not to gather larger groups. It's to make disciples. And so we have a, a people, a church of leaders who have been grown up to say, bigger church is better. I'm not a success unless I have a mega church. And I'm not a success if I'm doing like smaller things instead of bigger impact things. And and I'll be honest with you, my own ego struggles with the same thing. I want to be a part of big church. I want to make global impact. One of the hardest things for us as pastors to realize is that we don't make any difference in anybody's life. It's the Holy Spirit that does it. Now, God uses all of us to do these things. But Ephesians 4 clearly lays us out of what God has called the church to be. He's given gifted leaders to the church to equip the body to equip the people to do the work of ministry. And we have professionalized ministry and lost the priesthood of believers and saying, I'm the one that gets to do this right. You sit and listen and receive rather than what God has called us to do is to rather than go to church, we're called to be the church and we're not called to follow a personality. We're called to follow Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Great insights from Pastor Chris Mead. And when we return, what do we do next, Chris? <laughs> Let's find out on Difference Makers. listening to Difference Makers. My name is Mike Lee, and my dear friend Chris Mead is a pastor who, upon 
moving to Florida, recommitting to the Lord, and driving back. Found a church. In fact, it was a, a woman who bumped into him at a Red Robin where he was working, saying, I remember you from junior high youth group. You need to come to church with me. That's got to be a solid 10 years early, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, 12 to 21, 22 years old. And yet she had the guts to reintroduce herself, remember you, mm-hmm. let you know that you counted, and drag you to church with them. So tell us what happened once the pastor you had mentioned said, I see you showing up late. I see you leaving early. Just quit it. What happened after that for you? Well, the amazing thing is I started serving and started becoming, you know, one of the things as a person who was not following Jesus is I could not understand why people would get in a group and sit in a circle, uh, sing some songs and read a book and then talk about it for a couple hours. I mean, the thought of going to a Bible study bored me to death. And I was like, who can do that? And so then I went to one and I'm like, oh, I need more of this. I hated not having the answers to questions that people were asking. And I felt this this need. So I would stay up to like three, four o'clock in the morning as as a young man in his 20s that could waste time like that. I would stay up to all the times in the morning studying my Bible so I could have answers and so I could come and share and, and teach and, and contribute to the group. I started um, greeting at the doors of our church and I realized that other people were just as scared to come into church as I was. And that showed me the importance of ministry, the importance of community, the importance of showing grace and uh, loving people as Jesus loved them. And so that's, I, I said, and I confirmed this with my leaders and pastors after a couple of years, and I said, I think I need to do this for the rest of my life. This, I will never get bored of, of teaching people about the Bible. I'll never get bored of sharing the grace of Jesus. And I asked, what do you think? And they said, yes, we see the same things. And so that's when I got my degree, my, my um, bachelor's in biblical studies from Corbin University, and I went on to get my master's in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. Now getting my doctorate in strategic leadership from Corbin University under an amazing professor named Dr. Leroy Gertson. Uh, not just a great professor, but an awesome leader and discipler. Um, so I've been pretty blessed to be a part of some some good colleges and some great education and some good leaders that have invested in me through the years. You talked about making poor decisions in your youth. Were you much of a student when you went to high school here? I graduated from McNary in Kaiser with a 1.02 GPA. I did not know I was going to graduate until the day after I walked. And in fact, the uh, when I opened up my diploma, it said TBD. And, so, <laughs> and to see the grace of God, and it's given me the kids that I have. I mean, they are excellent students and love going to school. School was in my high school years. I didn't like it. I hated school. And of course, that was a, a reflection of the turmoil in my home and in my own heart. And so when I went to college and I started pursuing things that were of my interest or of my calling, I was radically different student. I was a horrible student. I, I barely showed up to high school. My wife has become a lifelong learner, mm. and she is so much more intellectual than I am, so much more passionate a reader than I am. And like you, Chris, she didn't do much in high school growing up in Hillsboro at all, to the point where the level she's at now versus where she started, you just know it's a miracle. So God fueled that passion in your heart to be a lifelong learner, even if it hit a little bit later in life. So, <laughs> so good for you. So I'm did, a slow bloomer. Did you enjoy Corbin? Did you, did you enjoy Dallas Theological? Loved it. I mean, some of my best years were, were I mean, and again, as I'm soaking up the Bible and, and experiencing community, even at the college level, I would, I would recommend for any student that's listening, if they're looking to go to a college, look at Corbin. It's an excellent school. Um, they, they have excellent programs. Uh, but I mean, my years at Dallas Theological Seminary were just so formative, and not just formative for me as a, as a Christian growing in my knowledge and faith in Jesus. I mean, I saw God do miracle upon miracle. Every seminary student has a story of how God radically provided for them and changed them and molded them through their seminary experience. But now, even into uh, getting my doctorate in ministry and strategic leadership, how God has used that to mold and to shape me into a better leader, a better pastor, a better follower of Jesus, a better husband and father. 
I mean, all those things that God uses. That's why I do believe that leaders need to be continual learners. Uh, in fact, all of us should be continual learners as we want to be disciples of Jesus. Well, something you'd mentioned earlier on is the fault that we have in the modern church of wanting to follow that charismatic leader or speaker. And you're a fun one to watch preach because oh, you're, you're so visual in addition to being so cerebral and well-read. So at the same time, God's going to use exactly who he's going to use. That's right. So now at this stage, studying for a doctorate in strategic leadership, what exactly does that mean? And what does that reveal to you, especially today? Well, I mean, one of the things that's so important is that leadership matters. I mean, you see that through the history of the Bible. I mean, if you read through the Bible, you see how where God is sovereign and he he uses all things. He uses good leaders, he uses bad leaders. But as you see, even the history of Israel, when there was a good leader who followed God, who who sought his law and who sought his word and his presence. I mean, you see Moses who said, we're not going anywhere without your presence. When good leaders who are following God and lead the people well, the people prosper. When bad leaders would go away from God and they would go away from his word and go away from the vision that God has called them to, the people suffered. So that this is true in the modern day church today. I mean, we see it throughout history that leaders matter, good leadership matters. And so seminaries don't always teach about how to be a good leader or to even navigate through all of the things that we are going through as a culture. It, I mean, it teaches you good theology. I, mean, I learned a whole bunch of Greek and Hebrew that I can barely remember most of it today. But what I didn't learn was how to be a good leader, how to handle the things that we are going through today, how to pour into people. And so we teach preaching, we teach good ministry skills, but even we don't teach how to be a disciple who makes disciples that makes disciples. And so part of this program at Corbin in my strategic leadership and my doctorate in ministry, I mean, it's for people who are in ministry and not in ministry. It's for really anybody who wants to be a better leader. Um, it is to focus on what is leadership? What's biblical leadership? What is good leadership and the effects of it? how to build teams, how to not see myself as the Savior and to rely on the Savior. And I think that's one of the things that we struggle with as leaders is we think that we are the answer. And I know that I can do nothing apart from God. If this, Even when I'm teaching, and, and I love Had Robinson. He was formative to my ideas of preaching. He was one of my heroes. I got to teach with him one time at a, at a missions conference. It was one of the highlights of my career. And he says, one of the greatest sins that we can do in, in preaching is to be boring. And I remember going to church as a kid and listening to boring teachers and, and playing tic-tac-toe instead of listening and engaging with the person saying. And so I'm like, when I teach, I never want to be boring. I want to be engaging. I want to not disengage the mind. I want to engage the heart. But I know with all of that, even with the gifting and skill and refinement that I've done through the years, if the Holy Spirit's not in it, if he's not going between my mouth and the person's ears, it's a self-help talk. And so I am dependent on God to transform the lives and the hearts and the minds of the people who are listening and engaging with this word. And I'm dependent on them to not just be depending on me and my message in that you know half an hour or when I'm speaking, probably more like 45, 50 minutes, I always tend to go over. Um, but I need them to be seeking their authentic relationship with Jesus and engaging his word and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform them through the renewing of their mind. If we are just depending on a personality on a Sunday morning, we are spiritually starving ourselves. We talk about issues with the church. That's one of the major issues with the church is that we have depended on personalities to spiritually feed us in that small, short time on a Sunday morning and not be self-feeders to dive into and ingest the, the word of God ourselves so that we can be the Bereans to test. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have heard pastors teach things that were not biblically true in an engaging, passionate way, and the church is saying, amen, brother. Like, that's amazing. I love it because they don't have the food that they've ingested to know what's true and what's from error. They trust the person that's up there on the stage to go, I trust that what they're saying is true. And when they're a dynamic personality, that draw is even greater. And so that trust of leaders, and I think that trust is now going away. 
whether it be through the Church 2 movement, or we've seen so many major pastors fail in big church and in small church. We've all been affected by that. And so what we're not doing is going, okay, these are sinners that are saved by grace. They've, they've fallen away from their ministry. But we don't have the big biblical acumen to then go, okay, how do I think about that biblically? And I say that in a general sense. I'm not saying that for all people, but I'm saying it in when the trends of our culture, when the trends of the American church is to not have the biblical foundation to handle these crisis moments. And that's where the greatest things of all the stuff we're going through right now, whether it be COVID or all of the things that are separating, dividing us, we're not allowing scripture to train us, to teach us, to mold us, to guide us in how we navigate through these things. It's either we're taking our political agendas, our, our different communities, our tribes, and how they're reacting. But what we got to do is say, Jesus, what do you want from me? What is your word? How does your word have to speak into this? And pursuing God and the Holy Spirit to transform us, to mold us. Not to the image of culture, but to the image of a biblical follower, of a disciple. When I lived back in New York, Chris, I was blessed with a couple of amazing lead pastors who tended to be topical, but their walks with the Lord were enough that it was okay. There weren't any big fallacies or scandals, at least that I'm aware of. So since moving to the West Coast, I've become a huge fan of expository preaching, which would be book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because I believe it's too easy for us, whether it's conscious or unconscious, to slip in our own agenda to whatever message we're supposed to be speaking out of the Word of God. That's right. And at the same time, I have pastor friends who say, well, what if God calls me to talk about something else? I'm like, well, I suppose you could just do that for that particular message. But what are your thoughts on that? And how do we get to this level of individual discipleship so that we are seeking him and not his speakers? Mm, those are two very big questions. I will try to handle them briefly with the time we have left. I think one, I mean, when it comes to... Uh, we can use some big words in the church realm. I'm not sure even most churches, most churchgoers, uh, that's part of their common vernacular. Whether it be exegetical preaching, which just means letting the text be the authority. And so pulling from the text, the application, pulling from the text, the main points of your message. And so the message becomes the primary focus or the, the text becomes the primary focus of the message. Rather than when it comes to a lot of topical messages, what they call eisegesis, which means you put meaning onto the text. So a lot of pastors, and both are valid. I prefer an exegetical, and I think that is a more, um, a greater way to teach the body to know their own Bible. Having topics and what the Bible says, we there's a temptation to then say, okay, here's what I want to teach and not allow the Bible to teach itself. The Bible was written as letters. It was written as books with context in it, and that context needs to be a part of what we're teaching. And if we don't do that, we as teachers run the uh, real big danger, and I've seen this again and again, of taking so many verses out of context and change the meaning of the text. And when we do that, we misrepresent Scripture. And I think well-intentioned, a lot of well-intentioned pastors do this, but that's part of getting back to what Scripture has to say. We need to allow Scripture to be the hero of the story. We need to allow it to speak to our hearts because the power is in the, the Scripture, it's in the text, not in my ideas of the text, or not even in the topic. The power is in the Holy Spirit speaking through the text that he inspired men to write. How do we return back to discipleship? That's an even bigger question. I mean, part of it is that we as leaders need to have a reformation of how we see church. And so that's me as a pastor, that is as elders, that's boards, that is staff, that we need to see that our job is not to create bigger, bigger churches and bigger events. It is to be those gifted leaders, as Ephesians 4 says, to equip the body to do the work of ministry, which means that we need to change how we see ministry and change how we see church, quote, quote, as not just events that we continually promote to get bigger and bigger, but we see ourselves as pouring into people and pointing them to Scripture, teaching them to know all that Jesus has commanded. So that means we have to radically change how we do church. And it also means that we need to, like as followers of Jesus, 
not believe as the American church has gone to that this idea of I'm saved. Now I'm done. I prayed a prayer and now I'm done. All I do is I go to church. And so in fact, if anybody comes to faith, they pray a prayer, they come to an altar call. And then what does a church do? They say, okay, here's the things you do. You come to church, you give, you give your tithe, you start a Bible study in a community group. You give them all these lists to do rather than entering into that intimate relationship and the experience of who God is. And so we need to get back to that, knowing, experiencing in a relationship with our God, with our Savior, who desires for that and to show us that abundant life. And so it's for people to say, I need more than just going to church. I need to be the church. And saying, I don't want to just attend and be a part of religious acts. I need to be a disciple of Jesus, which means you have to pursue it. And that's scary because we have to ask that because I've asked people before, hey, would you disciple me? And they would be like, no. And that's like rejection is one of my biggest fears. And I know others, the same thing. And, and it's, it's, it's an intimate thing to say, speak into me. But we have to pursue being disciples, not pursue doing religious acts. Which means we need to pursue Jesus and the power and the experience of a spirit and I'm not a charismatic, and so I know my charismatic brothers might interpret that differently than me. But what I'm saying is that we have to get to a point where we are feeding ourselves and meditating on Scripture and allowing others to speak into our lives, to be fully known, and then to know others, and then now to start discipling someone else. It's not just to be a disciple. The mission is to go and make disciples. And it's a commitment to what that really is. Thank you so much for your insights and your wisdom. Pastor Chris Mead, I pray that God's next chapter for you is clear and smooth and that you will continue to impact the world for him. So on our way out, is there anyone you want to say hi to or send a shout out to? Uh, to my wife, love you. To my kids, I'm so proud of you. And to the church, continue to pursue Jesus and the leading of the Spirit. Be empowered by him and be experience the joy in the life that he offers. Amen to that. If someone wanted to contact you or had a question, could I give them your email address? Of course. That'd be Christopher James Mead at gmail.com. And I'll throw that on the Difference Makers page at TrueTalk800.com. So, Chris Mead, thanks for all that you're doing for the kingdom of God. And you can also find me on Facebook as well. Friend me. I'd love that. Follow me on Facebook as well. Thank you so much, Chris Mead. And thank you for listening to Difference Makers. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.